Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Buenos dias, mis amigos. I told you one time that uh, early in my career, I did a couple projects in Chihuahua, Mexico, right? And that was before that whole area got a bit dicey with Los Drugos down there. Much more innocent times, very long time ago. So we made it to February. Old man winter has shown up with a vengeance up here in New England. It's okay, I like winter, or at least I can deal with it when it's really only a couple of months out of the year. really only gets bad for a couple of weeks, and that's in January and February. One of the joys of living here is you get four real seasons, but not enough of each to make them super annoying. So it makes makes us flexible and tough. Since we talked last time, a couple weeks ago, it's been snowing almost every day. Last weekend, we got a cool two-day blizzard that dumped like three feet of snow. And since it was cold, too, zero degrees Fahrenheit, it was uh, that fluffy snow that's great for winter sports and fairly easy to move, but we got a lot of it. And it's over Buddy's head, (laughs) and he's confined to a short path in the front yard that we shoveled out for him, and he's got cabin fever, and he's, he's quite bothersome. And I took him for a walk during the blizzard, but it was it was over his head and up to my thighs, so we could only break trail for a couple hundred feet before we had to turn around. I've been having to get m- most of my runs in on the treadmill, which is not optimal. Also, after we talked a couple weeks ago, I ran the Derry 16-miler, and I felt pretty good. This is a, a super hilly course up in New Hampshire, and the weather was good for Derry, <laughs> just around freezing. And I took it super easy, and I sort of ran-walked, power-walked some of the big hills. And then I closed it nicely at the end in the last 5K. And I ended up running around a 217 and felt pretty strong. So I'll 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 take that. And that capped off a 53-mile week for me on four runs. And the following weekend, I went out and did a three-hour easy run for my long run. And I took it super easy and just did loops around my house. And I felt like I could have kept going at the end, so my base is pretty good and strong. It's a bit dismal with the snow and the cold and the darkness, but you know how it is. The only way out 
in these situations is forward. And besides, the cold weather really slows the zombies down. And thanks to those of you, thanks to those of you who threw me some donations for my Team Hoyt campaign for running the Boston Marathon this year, I appreciate it. Those of you who haven't, now's a good time. I still need your help. I'm only a quarter of the way to my goal. Come on now. I don't ask you folks to buy t-shirts, and I don't give a rat's ass if you give me a review on iTunes or vote for me in whatever podcast awards are the thing of the day. This isn't a commercial venture for me. It's a creative hobby, so cough up the cabbage and we'll call it even. Quid pro quo, Clarice. Quid pro quo. And today we have a most excellent show for you. I interview Sherry Ann Nelson who is the captain of a team that is going to take on the Patagonia Patagonia Expedition Race next year, which is a super hairy race in South America. It's like a bike paddle, mountain bike, climbing, survival, adventure type thing. Really hardcore. Look it up. It's kind of amazing. And I feel like I could have done a better job with Sherry Ann. I could have, could have done a better job interviewing her. I feel like I should have asked the kind of questions like, what are you nuts? Leaving your comfy life and your and your family for this misadventure out in the South American wilderness? How do you really feel about that, Sherry Ann? But I didn't. Even with my love of a good adventure, this sort of thing, I'd be terrified going down there. Myself, I haven't been traveling over for almost a month, and that always makes me a little itchy. But I'm getting a lot done in between angsty episodes of overeating and oversleeping. But the days are getting longer. I'm hitting the road next week, going for a trip. In section one, I wrote a bit of a tongue-in-cheek piece about some of the myths surrounding marathon running that we have to watch out for. And in section two, we'll talk about the philosophy of time. So, keep on shoveling, but don't shovel straight lines. Because, as we all know, evil spirits love straight lines. And they'll follow those straight lines right to your door. Shovel in crooked lines. It'll confuse the walking dead, too. On with the show. Come on, let's have some fun. Let's go for a run. Five Dangerous Marathon Myths It was Groundhog Day this week in the United States, and I got to thinking about how culturally we make up traditions and myths. Puxatawney Phil, that's the groundhog, has no bearing on the weather whatsoever. But somehow, in our Neanderthal brains, we get some comfort out of these shamanistic rituals. In the same way, in our running, stuff that people made up decades ago still hangs around the sport as part of our mythos. And we hand it down to each generation. Let's look at some of these myths and pull ourselves out of our holes of ignorance and see them for the shadows that they are. The first one, number one, you need to carbo-load pasta leading up to your race. Now, I love this one. This is a big, fat, whopping lie. Every big race has a pasta dinner on the night before the race. It's part of our culture, right? This one has probably been around as long as humanity in some form or another. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. 
Now that sounds a lot like carbo-loading for a marathon, and that's at least 2,500 years old. In the context of the marathon, this became really popular as a concept with the first running boom in the 1970s. And someone, since we had a little bit of science back then, not a lot, we had a little science in the 70s, someone figured that you need energy in a race, and that energy came from carbohydrates, and pasta was a good cheap source of carbohydrates, so hey, eat a bunch of pasta. There you go. Now the last thing that you want to do the night before a marathon is eat too much of anything. Where do you think it goes? Does it magically get sucked up into your leg muscles like a Super Mario power-up? No. Your body takes what it can use, and the rest of it goes to your colon, where it bothers you with a certain urgency and insistence in the morning, right before your race. Really? You don't think you have enough going on and enough stress on race morning that you need to throw in a little intestinal expediency into that mix? Not to put too fine a point on it, but the concept of loading up on anything the night before a race is literally a bunch of crap. And pasta, depending on your nutritional religious leanings, may not be the best either. Pasta in our modern world is a highly processed product. I'd stay away from it in general, but especially if you have a sensitivity to grains or gluten or anything like that. If you must have your pre-race primavera, just have a normal sized, you know, a small serving. Don't preload massive quantities of anything. Just eat normal, if not lighter than normal, portions of the same healthy whole foods you have been eating throughout your training cycle, if you're smart. Myth number two. You need to preload water before that race. This is a fairly easy myth to wrap our heads around. It goes something like this. When you run long distance, you sweat. Sweat is water. Therefore, you should drink a lot of water to get ready for your race. What could possibly be wrong with that? New runners hear this type of sentiment as, make sure you're well hydrated, and translate it into, guzzle water for three days straight leading up to your race. Not a good idea. Where do you think all that water goes? Do you think that you are the human equivalent of a camel? and you can just store a few gallons up in a fatty hump somewhere for later use? Sorry, that's not what happens. What happens is, if you pound water, you pee a lot. The other thing that happens is you actually flush electrolytes and other useful stuff out of your system. That not only puts your body chemistry out of balance, it makes you deficit in the exact stuff you are going to need for the race. What should you do? Well, certainly, you can stay hydrated in the sense that you don't want to be thirsty, but don't overdo it. How about this for a novel idea? Drink when you're thirsty. Huh? I've grown rather fond of coconut water recently because it has natural electrolytes and other good stuff in it. And I may have one or two of those the night before as I'm relaxing in my hotel room. A corollary to this myth is that you should watch your urine color and keep drinking until it's clear. Well, folks, your urine color is as much based on your diet as your hydration. This is one of those rules of thumb that could get you in trouble if your body chemistry or diet is different. Just drink healthy, natural stuff when you're thirsty, and you'll be fine. Myth number three, 
you need to stay super hydrated during that race. A few years ago, race directors realized how dangerous this myth is when the back of the packers started dying with hyponatremia. That's water poisoning. The experts told these folks that they needed to stay hydrated. And these poor folks at the back of the pack drank water until they died. You only need to replace the water that you're using through sweat in a race. Do you know how much that is? It's easy to figure out. Go to a treadmill. Weigh yourself before you start. Weigh yourself after. The difference is your sweat rate. Depending on conditions, you may not lose that much water. I ran a 16-mile race last weekend and still had water left in my bottle at the end. It was just about freezing, and my sweat rate at that temperature is not that high. It's going to be dependent on your physiology, your effort level, and the temperature. Figure it out. Know your machine. Don't just swill water like a psychopath because some nutter in a running magazine said to. Myth number four, you need to eat gels and goop, and lots of them, in a marathon. The myth here is that somehow you're going to be able to eat and process magic energy food during your race, and it's going to seamlessly replace all that energy you're losing by running. Well, that's just not true. Your body can't absorb all that stuff. Most of it is processed sugar. That will more than likely just make you sick if you eat enough of it. So, Chris, you may ask, what do you do to have energy during the race? My first suggestion would be to train well enough that you don't need that much sugar, that sugar crutch. I have nothing against taking fuel in a race, but be moderate and don't buy the marketing hype. It cracks me up to see people in a marathon with 12 or more gels pinned to their outfit like a machine gunner's bandolier. Unless you've got some sort of metabolic problem, there's no way you need or can absorb more than, let's say, 90 or so sugar calories an hour. That's one gel an hour, max, folks. More than that, and you're just clogging up your system and making it inefficient. Your body has enough fat in it to run a marathon, several marathons, as a matter of fact. During your training, go easy on the sugar and let your body learn how to burn that fat for fuel. And that way, when you get into a race, you won't feel like you have to pour so much sugar on the fire. And number five for our top five myths is you got to drink chocolate milk at the end of your race. So, who do you th this is a fairly recent one. Actually, no, I've seen this with the mountain bikers for probably a decade, too. But who do you think came up with the idea that you should drink chocolate milk after a race? Maybe the dairy industry? I don't know. It's, I know it's a religious war sort of thing, but, you know, the science says dairy is bad for your heart over the long term. And what else is in chocolate milk? Oh, yeah, lots of processed sugar, which causes inflammation. We all know that's bad for you for recovery. This chocolate milk thing is a marketing coup by somebody. Maybe the same guy who convinced people that smoking was good for them. But seriously, your body is beat up and struggling enough at the end of a race. Don't give it more stress by dumping chocolate milk into it. Have a banana and a bottle of water. Stay away from the dairy products and the processed recovery drink crap that they try to hand you at the end of a race. So those are my top five marathon myths of racing. 
What are yours? And now for today's featured interview. So, Sherianne, how are you today? I am great, Chris. Thank you so much for asking. And, and you are located where? I am in Scottsdale, Arizona. It's cold there today. It's like maybe 76. <laughs> by standards here in Arizona, yes, that is cold. But by most people, that's you know quite glorious, actually. <laughs> we got three feet of snow, and it's 12 degrees out, but it's 73 and sunny where you are. <laughs> so, Sherianne, we're talking today because... You've got a whole bunch of stuff going on. Not only are you sort of a uh, a superhero in terms of endurance sports, but you're also got a new adventure that you've jumped into, which is interesting, you know, because a lot of times we get to a point, you know, folks like you where you've done so much, you wonder what's next, right? So it's kind of cool you found out what's next. Mm-hmm. Give us a 200 words or less on who you are, what you're doing. Oh, my goodness, 200 words or less. And thank you for calling me a superhero. I don't quite look at myself as like that, but that's awesome. (laughs) I'll take it. Quickly, I am a mom of three. That's my first and foremost priority on this planet. And then um, after that, I'm a coach. I help a lot of people. And then after that, I'm an athlete. And I started racing Ironmans in 2012. I did my first Ironman Arizona. Um, And I signed up for that race for 2012 after I volunteered in 2011 when I was standing in line signing up for Ironman, I was kind of thinking, what am I doing? But like you'd said before, I was kind of looking for that next thing because I had only done road races. And I always thought that Ironman athletes were just spectacular people. And so I signed up for Ironman, not even owning a bike, hadn't been in a pool since forever, it felt like. I mean, I never really did laps for exercise. So I signed up quickly found a coach and bought a bike and started training. And in 2012, when I towed the line at Ironman Arizona, I was just thinking, have a good day. Just have fun and create some memories. I ended up finishing third in my age group and eighth amateur female and had the day of my life. I was so excited because I had qualified for world championships in Kona and and approaching that race, I kind of knew that I had a knack for this, that I liked endurance sports, and so exciting to be able to qualify for Worlds. So what's your background? Is it which one of the disciplines? Oh, running. (laughs) Yeah, so you were a runner in college, right? I was a runner in college, but I actually ran my first 10K when I was eight years old with my dad. So, and I've just been running ever since. And when it comes to triathlons, if you're a runner, you you can do really well at triathlons. So... And, you know, that's strange because most of those guys are big-time roadie bikers or swimmers. You know, that's how they get into it. You're exactly right. But if you really think about triathlons, it comes down to the run. It's the third discipline. And it comes down to you really monitoring how you dole out your efforts and your swim and your bike. And if you do it smart and you're a good runner, you can have a fantastic race. Yeah, so you must just harvest people in the last two, three hours of the race, right? Yeah. <laughs> once, once once, you get your shoes on and you're gone, you must just be just harvesting hundreds of people. That's, that's when I, I'm always jonesing for the run. I can't wait till I get my shoes on, and that's my happy place. Yeah, and that's a force multiplier, too. <laughs> as uh, When you're passing people late in a race, that's just a, that's just a, it just makes you go faster. <laughs> It's, it's, you know, it's kind of fun to, you know, pick them off as the race goes along, but I, I have fun with it. I smile at them. I cheer them on and 
And I think that's been good for me because it has helped me in turn really appreciate the success that I have had at this sport. Um, and so, yeah, it's fun running past people, but at the same time, it's really just, I've made a lot of friends in the whole process. Yep. And you moved on to, uh, ultras and, and stuff like that too. Well, running has always been a passion of mine. And when I picked up triathlons in 2012, I just, that was my focus for 12, 13 and 2014. And towards the end of 2014, after I finished Ironman Arizona, and I had done some ultras in 14, but I decided that 2015, I really wanted to get back to doing running. And I love ultras. I think that the vibe at ultra races is just, it's, it's like nothing else. Everybody's there to have a great time. It's not about time. Like when you finish, it's just about going out and having an experience in the journey of doing, you know, a 50 K or a 50 miler or a hundred miler. It's just, so that's my thing for this year. That's what, well, that will be my shtick. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's certainly the culture is 180 degrees different than a, a triathlon culture, you know, where everybody's about the equipment and the time and the intensity and the, the ultra community is sort of just like a bunch of guys out running trails, having fun. It reminds me of cross-country practice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're absolutely right. And I love the competitive nature of triathlons. I really do. And and that was such a great time. But it was time for me at the end of 2014 to just kind of dial back and really enjoy running again and doing it for the spirit of it because when you're out running a trail there's nothing like it when you're smelling the earth and you're seeing the sights and you're hearing the ground beneath your feet I mean it's just trail running is like nothing else and I I always tell people if you're running run on trails as much as you can because it's just eye-opening not only for where you live and experiencing where you live in a different light but you learn so much about yourself when you're out on a trail, too, I think, because your mind is able to just kind of wander a little bit more, I think. Yeah, I mean, that's my that's my happy place, too. So if I'm having if I'm struggling and I need to reset, I'll hit the trails. Yeah. Right. I'll just go out and do some long stuff. And it was funny. I was in the locker room yesterday at, at one of my clubs because, uh, of course, you got to have more than one gym. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um and uh, there was a guy in there. He goes, oh, I'm from Texas. I don't know the area. Where are some nice, you know, trails? And I started telling him where the trails were. But then I realized the trails up here are way different than the trails in Texas. <laughs> you know, he's thinking dirt roads. I'm centered about all these single path technical stuff out into the out into the mountains, right? So, yeah. But it's uh, yeah, it's it's beautiful. To get out and get on the trails. I get a lot of spiritual energy from that myself. Oh, I much prefer trails. And the and the one thing I I really just recently discovered I did a fifty miler that I trained for over the summer of maybe two thousand eight two thousand nine something like that, and I thought it was so easy at the time because all I was doing was these super long trail runs at like two minutes a mile slower than my race pace my marathon pace right mm-hmm. so I'm like this is the easiest training ever <laughs> it's like it's like full on picnic right you're eating all the time walk when you get tired. Um, but I realized that the base I built from that enabled like two years of really fast marathon times. Yes. It's so true because when you're doing zone two training for trail running and ultra running, it builds that base stronger and stronger. And how I explain it to my athletes is, 
You know, if you're building a house, you need a really good, strong foundation in order to build that house up on it. And that's what zone two running is, is it just builds your base so much stronger so that when you're ready to pile on intensity, when you're ready to go back to road racing, you can be that much faster because it comes back so fast. Yeah. That's the peak of the pyramid. <laughs> yeah. How how do you stay um, not injured? It sounds like you did five Ironmans in five years plus a bunch of ultras. That's a lot of that's a lot of volume. Yeah, actually, it was um, five Ironmans in three years. So I did two last year and two the year before, and then some fifty milers. So a lot of it comes down to what I do post race, and then even just post workouts. You know, I'm really big into compression. I love my compression tights. I do a lot of soaks in Epsom salts. And then the last thing is nutrition. Nutrition plays such a huge role in recovery. And I think that's one thing that people just don't pay enough attention to. And I think if you're fueling your body properly, post, during, and even pre-workout, you're setting yourself up for success. So it really comes down to what I'm fueling with my body. So what temperature do you take your uh, post-workout baths? Because I always kind of like ice baths, but they're very torturous. So that is a great question. I'll do ice if I feel like there was some trauma to my body in the sense of if it was a really long and my ankles feel sore when I'm done or anything like that. Because on the trails, you're moving your foot so much because of the terrain. Like it will roll to the sides and whatnot. So all of your stabilizer muscles in your ankle and your calves really take a beating. So if they're sore, I'll do ice. Or if I have an injury, I'll do ice. But afterwards, it's like if I'm just like a normal achy sore, it's usually Epsom salts because that just really helps draw out the lactic acid and the soreness that I'm feeling. So I only do ice if I feel like I'm on the verge of an injury or if something is really sore. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So I would usually do those only after my sort of peak week, uh, peak build week long runs is where I'd do an ice bath, right? Yeah. Or or if I threw in a, you know, a 30K race on the roads, which, you know, you're going, your intensity is a little harder. You end up getting beat up a little bit. Uh, that's when I do an ice bath. It wouldn't be after every workout. Right. But I also noticed, like you said, I was working with Rachel last summer on nutrition, and I noticed that uh, when I got my nutrition right with the the Whole Foods, which is what I think you're referring to, um, I, I wasn't sore anymore, which was amazing to me. <laughs> yeah, if you give your body the right kinds of foods to you know, replenish the muscle mass that you've depleted while you've been working out, it's just it recovers so much faster. A lot of the inflammation, it's, it's just amazing. You've managed to avoid injury then through all, this, uh, through all this volume. Yes, just little minor aches and pains and nothing serious. So I've been very lucky. And I mean, and also I have to give you a lot of credit to my chiropractor. I see a chiropractor every week, once a week, because, you know, I put my body through the ringer. And so as long as I'm staying aligned, then my body is able to fight off whatever might come its way, whether it's even a virus or you know, an injury. So I do I do give a lot of credit to my chiropractor. He keeps me straight and healthy and injury-free too. Yeah, so a lot of the chiros are not just um, bone crackers. They also do the uh, the PT and the uh, massage therapy. So yeah. they're more well-rounded a lot of times than just the guys you think of in popular mythos where, <laughs> you know, you go in and the guy cracks your back. Yeah, don't see those people. <laughs> Yeah, so you gotta gotta understand when you say chiropractor what you're talking about.
What kind of folks are you coaching now? What's your, your athlete look like? I, it runs the gamut. I have people that are just into like basic fitness, and then I have people that are training for Ironman and so and everything in between. And then I have some runners that are just training for to you know have a Boston qualifying time. So it it can run the whole gamut of just basic fitness to an Ironman. And what do you see as the sort of uh, common denominator in all these folks? For me right now, I draw a lot of first timers, and I'm. Don't really know why, and I think that's just because possibly that I'm easy to talk to. And because for first-timers, <laughs> it's really nerve-wracking for them. You know, people see that I'm really real and I'm very authentic and honest with people. And it's scary when people decide to take on something new. I would say my common denominator right now is probably a lot of first-time athletes, which I love. I love newbies because they're just so excited about everything. It's like they've walked into a candy store and they get to have whatever they want. You know, it's like they're just, they're chomping at the bit for the workouts and they're full of questions and they're like sponges. And so I love working with new athletes. And and the challenge is probably getting them to not do everything, right? <laughs> oh, I just had a conversation yesterday with a new athlete because this is their rest week. And I said, this is going to be the hardest week for you mentally. I mean, physically, it's a great rest recovery week. So take it because it, it's like because next week will be tough, you know. And so it's yeah, the, I would say the biggest challenge is getting them to just trust the process, because when you're training for a big event, it's a process, you know, and they can't quite see the whole picture yet because they haven't experienced it. And so it's so there's a lot of education in it. And I that, but I love that. I love teaching people. So I saw you posted some some core strength uh, videos you do a lot of a lot of core in your personal training and with your athletes yes because everything stems from the core so if you have a strong core and when I say core it's not just the abs in the front it's just not the six-pack that people covet it's your whole girdle from your shoulders down to your hip everything stems from that so if you have a strong core you're able to run more efficiently you're able to bike easier you're be able to swim better, you know, especially if you're a triathlete. And then for my runners, they're just able to run more efficiently with less energy. Core is critical, I think, for everybody, just your generic people, too, that aren't elite athletes. Having a strong core enables them to have a better chance of not injuring themselves when they're stepping up on a stepladder or when they're going to pick up a bag of groceries. Yeah, or shoveling. Yeah. <laughs> So they, uh, I might have to go see the chiropractor too, right, after all this snow. <laughs> what I noticed, you know, as I worked more and more core into my routines, not just pure running as I got older, it goes hand-in-hand hand with your form. The better your form is, the more you can use your core, and the more you use your core, the better your form is. Exactly. So, you know, I was I ran a, a super hilly 16-miler uh, run on uh, Sunday, and, you know, going up the hills, that's when you use your core. You're not using your legs you're lifting with your your hips right you know you're you're lifting your knees with your hips not with your not with your legs you're not pushing off with your calves and it makes a big difference mm -hmm. all right so that that relationship between form and core is something you sort of have to learn exactly you have to you have to work on over and you never you, you never master it no no but uh but i passed somebody uh coming off the back of the hills because because they all 
blew up blew themselves up on the hills, right? And I of course didn't. And so when I was uh coming in the last five K, some lady goes to me, Wow, you have great form and I, I was that was the happiest thing anybody I was so happy, right? <laughs> what a what a nice thing to say. You felt right? like a rock star. <laughs> it's like, yeah. She's like, You're a great rudder. Like, yeah, thanks. <laughs> So the uh, the protocol that I'm that I'm sort of working on now, and coaches always say this, but I never did it before, is when I do the, my core routines, whether it's let's say it's a squat or uh, you know uh, even a bench press or whatever, I really focus on crunching my core muscles, meaning my glutes and my abs, right? Mm-hmm. So so contracting those as I'm doing the workout, as I'm doing the rep, I found that is really amazing in the way it works the core. It does. When you finally feel everything kind of work together, it's a really great feeling and you can feel yourself get stronger and stronger as you're doing that. Right. So in the same way that you're, like when I'm running up a hill, I'm lifting my legs with my core. Mm -hmm. When I'm doing a bench press or a squat, I'm lifting that weight with my core, Mm -hmm. not with my arms. So so it's the same thing. You do it nice and slow and you contract and lift with the core and that hits what you need to... uh, Need to hit. Yeah, no matter what muscle group you're lifting when you're weight training, you should always tighten your core first, you know, pull that belly button back to the spine and really engage the whole core before you go through the motion of whatever you are going through. And you'll find that you can do it much more effectively and easier. Yeah, it makes it easier. And even if you don't have any weights, if you're just doing a plank, same thing. Mm-hmm. Right, okay. and you don't have you don't have to do as many reps, and you don't have to do them as long, and you'll be you know I found it's a hell of a workout you know <laughs> trying to trying to maintain that crunch you don't have to do half as many uh, reps right exactly yep why we're talking here this week is because you signed up for something truly uh, crazy even more crazy <laughs> than doing five Ironmans in uh, three years so uh, what's that. At the end of Ironman Arizona in 2014, I was just kind of going, and I was really gunning for a world championship spot at that race because I had turned one down at Ironman Montreblanc a few months prior. And I was really disappointed that I missed it by one slot. And I was just kind of sitting there the week after the race going, do I really want to do an Ironman next year? And a friend sent me an article that Outside Magazine put out about the 10 toughest races around the world. I was taking a look at that and in there was the Patagonia Expedition Race. And I had seen that race several years ago. And I'm a firm believer that when things come across your plate again, when you see it again, it's for a reason. So I looked into it and I thought, this is something I want to do. I asked a few friends here locally, you know, if that would be something that would be up their alley. And they said no. So I went to my coach and I said, look, this is something I would like to do. Is this crazy? He said, it is crazy and we're going to do it. So we quickly started interviewing other athletes because we needed a team of four. Right. I needed to quickly find three other people because the registration process was open. They were only accepting 15 teams. So I felt like I had a deadline to hit. I did have a deadline to hit. And in the process, they sent out a notice that they had received so many applications that they extended it five more teams. So they were now accepting 20 teams. So Jeff and I quickly were trying to figure out a team and put a good team together with synergy and where we would be most successful because we needed a navigator and we needed people that knew mountaineering and kayaking and mountain climbing and mountain biking and all these things. And so we formulated a team 
and sent our registration in. And two weeks later, I received a letter that our team was accepted. I couldn't believe it. I was just stunned because so many teams wanted in and they were only accepting 20. We received that letter December 19th. And since then, it's kind of been a whirlwind of just acquiring some sponsors and partnering ourselves with some great organizations and just getting things up and running. And we have our first team get together in the Grand Canyon in March. And I couldn't be more excited about the guys that are doing this adventure with me and the people that we're partnering with. It's just going to be an amazing, amazing journey. So it looks like most of these teams do uh, four guys and one woman. Is that what you, you're doing? Um, that's what we are doing, yes, because you have to have at least one female or one male on the team. So I'm the team captain of our team. I don't think there's any other females that have ever captained a team. I'm pretty stoked to be the first female captain. So Patagonia, for those of us who, who uh, know our geography, is the southern part of Chile. So that's the other side of the world from where we are. Yes. Sticking down towards the South Pole, and the geography is is similar to like Iceland or <laughs> or you know maybe northern Maine, you know that sort of thing with a lot of rocks and fjords and snow and glaciers, uh, maybe Pacific Northwest somewhere like that, right? Yeah. Um. So it's pretty gnarly. Yeah. And essentially, what you're doing is you're there's no course per se. You just do compass points. It's a bit of a stage race, too, so you do a stage and a stage and a stage, but there's kayaking, sea kayaking. You're going in the ocean, and yeah. by the way, in one of the roughest places in the world. You're doing climbing, mountain climbing, meaning you know ropes and stuff, rappelling down cliffs, and you're doing mountain biking, and then some, I guess you could call it running, but it looks more sort of like uh, slogging through <laughs> waist-deep ice flows and that sort of thing. Yeah, trekking, yep. <laughs> yeah, so, and and the other sort of, and there's no real trail. They just say, you know, you're going to that compass point, figure out how to get there. Exactly. So it, it seems very tough physically, but also something that if you do it right mentally or do it wrong mentally, that's going to make the difference. Yes. In the past, there's only been about a 33% finishing rate. The research that I've done on the teams that have completed, a lot of it comes down to, their ability to make quick decisions and navigate and not mentally break down. It's going to be probably one of the toughest things I've, not probably, it will be one of the toughest things that I've ever done mentally. Physically, I know our team will be prepared because we're, we're great athletes. And so over the course of this year, it'll be about gelling as a team and doing some navigation training. So we're pretty much going to meet up and have Jeff, our coach, drop us in a location and tell us to get to point B, and we'll have to figure out how to get there. Yeah, because those decisions, uh, you're making decisions without much data. Exactly. You know, you're you're looking at a compass point and a and a topographical topographical map and saying, you know, how do how do we get there? Yes. And you have a choice. You can either climb up the cliff or go around it. <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know, and, and those kind of decisions are going to make or break your race. So it's uh, and trying to be able to do that kind of thought while you're physically exhausted, as we all know, is hard. <laughs> yes, it's it will be such a wonderful challenge. I'm, you know, I, I'll admit I'm nervous about it only because I think that's human, but I'm more excited than nervous, and it will be such a great, great experience. I mean, and my family is so excited for me, and it's nice to have them backing me. Yeah, and it's an adventure, right? <laughs> yes. 
And you seem to be the kind of person where you, your endurance sports are an adventure for you. They are. It's you know, it's about living life to the fullest, and it's about pushing the envelope, you know, beyond what you think you are capable of doing. So many people put these limiting beliefs on themselves. And that's one of my jobs as a coach is to help people recognize those limiting beliefs and go past them. And everybody has them, you know. And so even when this came across my plate, I thought, is that possible? And then the moment I thought that, I was like, okay, I'm going to make it possible. Yeah, because you can either stay in the safe place you are, or you can uh, you can go and have that adventure, yeah. right? Yeah. And different people are wired different ways, but I think as endurance athletes, we're wired to uh, to have the adventure. <laughs> so you guys are uh, have a couple of sponsors and a foundation that you're collecting for here. Yeah, one of our biggest partners is Zero, the end of prostate cancer. And it's exciting to have them partner with us and us partner with them. So we're really focused on bringing more awareness to how it's just, I've learned so much from them. I had no idea how many men are affected by prostate cancer. So we're definitely partnering with them. And then they're in turn going to be backing us for this adventure. So it's exciting to be partnered with them. All right, that's great. So where can people find you and the and the stuff you're doing and any other links that you have? If you go to Facebook, you'll see us. And our USA team PRS Fit is our website. Yep. For Patagonia and so that's USA team because we're right now, I believe the only all-American team. That's where you can find us and you can follow our journey all over social media just by searching USA team PRS Fit. All right, it was great talking to you. I got to get back to shoveling. Chris, thank you so much for having me. All right, bye bye. Bye bye. Have a good one. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Time. I feel like I should cue up some Pink Floyd for this one. I was listening to podcasts last weekend as I was moving a few tons of snow over and over again. Much to my surprise, Peter Herridge, my friend, was talking about me and said, I don't know how Chris gets all the stuff done that he does or something like that. And the surprising part wasn't that Peter was talking about me, we share ideas, but that I have some unique ability to accomplish work. And if you were to read my school transcripts, you'd find that my teachers consistently said he could do so much better if he only applied himself. (laughs) I'm not one of those super hardworking people with a singular focus. You know the kind of people I mean. They they move mountains. They start foundations. They change history. Not me. I'm mostly along for the ride. And that being said, that being said, I do find the time to do the things I want to do. And I do have strategies to get the time to do it. It's not true that I have some special ability, but It is true that I understand the rules around time management, the nature of it, and how to work within those constraints. So, how much time do you have in your day? How much? I've got 24 hours in mine. The game now becomes how to use those 24 hours. I would propose to you, try the following exercise. Figure out what you do with your 24 hours. It's not as hard as you think, because... If you're like most people, your 24 hours consist of some large definable chunks. For instance, let's say you have a job 
In the Western worldview, a job takes eight hours out of your day. That's a third of your available time. Suppose you live 20 miles from work and have to fight traffic to get to your job. Suppose you're considerate enough to shower and shave and maybe have breakfast. Let's say all that stuff takes another two hours coming and going. So it's really 10 hours a day or more than a third of your day that you commit to that job. So what else is another big chunk of time in your day? How about sleeping? I like to sleep eight hours a night. Sometimes circumstances force me to cut that short, but I'm not the type of person that can live on five hours of sleep. It's just not healthy for me. Sleeping less to get more time is unhealthy. Don't steal from that sleep bucket. Out of our 24 available hours, if we, in this example, have 10 for work and 8 for sleep, that means there's only 6 left for everything else. And if you take this structure as fixed, that means everything else has to be fit into this 6 hours. Meal preparation, exercise, making love, watching movies, reading books, all of it. You see how it's like a puzzle or a game of Tetris where you're constantly trying to fit blocks of time together in a way that is most efficient and effective. This mental Tetris game with your time is not a solvable problem because you have, as they say in operations research, over-constrained the problem. If you really want to get everything done, you have to unconstrain the problem. You have to realize that Okay, you may need eight hours of sleep, but there's no reason you have to set aside another 10 hours for work or any other fixed blocks of time. You have to look at it as a 24-hour problem, not a free time problem. And if you take away one nugget from this, it's simply you've got a 24-hour opportunity here, not a time problem. If your work life is taking up a 30-year time, how do you set it up so you can access some of that work time and use it to get some other things done? And I'm not talking about stealing from your employer. I'll let you in on a revelation. Your employer doesn't want your time. Your employer wants the results that you produce by spending your time. The only reason they care about time is because it's the only thing they can measure. I remember working in Japan, and culturally, the office workers were expected to come in early and stay late. And sure, everybody was in the office for 12, 14 hours a day. But did they really get more work done? No. And they probably get less done because they've over-constrained the time problem. So here's some strategies to access that work time. First, don't put yourself into a job where you trade time for money. Any job where you have to punch a clock or be visible at a task for eight hours is going to constrain you to that job. Move yourself into a position where you are responsible for delivering results, not hours. If you're trading time for money and you've figured out a way to be more efficient, i.e. save time, you don't get that time back. In a time for money job, your employer does. If you figure out a way to be more effective, i.e. do more with less, again, you don't benefit from that in a time-for-money job. Your employer does. If you can position yourself in a results-based job, on the other hand, you get the benefit of any effectiveness and efficiency that you can come up with. And that's, that's a win for you and the employer. 
that's going to give you more time overall to play with in your life. As long as you get the work done and deliver to expectations, no one's going to care if you're playing golf at lunch or taking a conference call from the beach. Which I guess would be my second point. When you get to a results-based job, you can start to blur the lines between work time and your time. And this makes the optimization problem, that Tetris problem, less constrained and allows you to become more efficient. If you have a big project to deliver, maybe it's more efficient for you to work on it at night or on a plane instead of at your desk. Who knows? I'm going to put you to sleep here, but feel free to call or follow up with the Operations Research Department at MIT or Caltech. That's only a paragraph, so stay with me. If you can blur the lines, you can essentially double the size of the solution space. So removing these constraints allows you to create a much more efficient and optimal schedule. If you blur the lines, you create opportunity for more efficiency. In industry, this type of optimization typically yields a 15 to 30% increase in efficiency, meaning you get that much more done, right, by unconstraining the problem. But you can't do this because you're in a job like teacher or call center operator where you have to be there and you have to punch a clock. You're trading hours for money. What can you do about that? Well, I might recommend Tim Ferriss' book, The 4-Hour Workweek. He had a bunch of tactical suggestions that you may find useful. And the whole point of The 4-Hour Workweek was not to work four hours a week. It was to work in such a way as to find time to do the other things you want to do in your life. And one, one I liked particularly was ask your employee if you can work from home, maybe a couple days a week. And if you can eliminate your commute and maybe even your shower... You can find a couple more hours a day. Uh, another tactile thing I like to do is is I make sure I use dead time. Some people would consider driving their car to work or waiting in line or sitting in an airplane or even going for a run. You know, they would consider that dead time. I don't see that as dead time. I see that as opportunity time. One of the main reasons I'm able to produce stuff is my ability to use this this time in the cracks, this dead time, to my advantage. I can write the bones of one of these articles in 20 minutes. And that, my friends, is about how long it takes a flight to board. The truth is, it all comes back to you and what you want to do with your life. What's important to you? What are your goals? What's your self-worth and attitude? If you know these things, then use of time, whether personal or at work, becomes part of your proactive lifestyle design. I can't claim to have everything figured out in my world, but I know I don't want a 9-to-5 job because, while predictable, it's also a big waste of time. What's important to you? Money? Family? Career? Your answer to these questions will determine how you should spend your time. Once you figure that out, the rest isn't easy, but it's simple. You design the lifestyle, i.e. how you use your time, that fits into that balance. This is the end, my only friend. No safety or surprise. The end. We'll never pass this way again. The end. That was a good one, bud. Hey, folks. We have shoveled a crooked path to the end, to the conclusion 
of yet another Run Run Live podcast, episode 4-305, in the can. I think we're short on time, so I'll keep it brief. When it gets really cold out, I like to wear a balaclava. Unfortunately, a couple years ago, I lost my balaclava. So maybe one of you could knit me a balaclava? I like to say balaclava, by the way. I hate to buy a new one, because we only need it for two or three days a year up here, and I know as soon as I get another one, I'll find the old one. It's funny, my wife, in her Yogi Berra moments, not the picnic basket bear, the catcher with a proclivity for malapropisms, she always asks me if I'm wearing my baklava, which gives me an hilarious visual of having my head wrapped in Greek pastry. <laughs> so my new book uh, is getting typeset into a beautiful ebook by a nice gentleman in Pakistan. Actually is in my inbox waiting for me to inspect. Should be able to ship some promo copies next week. So anybody has ideas on promotion, I'll be happy to take them. I have to get it converted to Kindle, too, so I can post it up on Amazon. And remember, if you haven't donated a couple bucks to my Hoyt cause, now's a good time. So we've spent some time on the Groton Road Race, and we've got that coming up on April 26th this year. It's coming together well, and I'm working to set up a, a virtual race category so folks can run it remotely. So you get to go and run your 5K or your 10K somewhere else and send us your times and we'll stick you into the virtual category. We'll send you one of the super sweet tech shirts that we're putting our wearable art on this year. And I was talking to my daughter last week. She had started a new job and she was complaining that she couldn't sleep well because she had too many things going on in her head. So this, this is another version of that Tetris problem. You lie awake at night going over all the things you have to worry about and trying to fit them together in a way that makes sense. And your brain, your brain's working overtime, smoke coming out of your ears, your brain's working on that puzzle, and it can't sleep until it gets that puzzle solved and gets that resolution. And one way to address this problem is to get out a piece of paper or the equivalent handful of electrons for you kids and write down all the things that are on your mind. Write them all down. And your purpose here is not to solve the Tetris problem, not to solve any of these things. Your purpose here is to capture them all. Capture all these bits so your subconscious knows that they're in a safe place. They're safe. Don't have to worry about them. And you do this before you go to bed, and it allows your brain to take a break because it knows these things are safe. And you can sleep. So sleep tight. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. I'm not letting you out. I'm in the middle of recording.